If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China's Communist Party is getting ready to celebrate its centenary this summer. That requires turning China's messy and revolutionary past into a simple morality tale. We look at the airbrushing of history at one contested site. And Asfor Yemiru founded one of Ethiopia's most famous schools, transforming the lives of poor children. But when he first walked the 75 miles to Addis Ababa, he had 50 cents in his pocket and no shoes on his feet. First up, though. Last night, there were celebrations in the streets as Israel and Hamas agreed to a ceasefire after 11 days of fighting. The conflict began after Palestinian protesters clashed with Israeli police near the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Since then, at least 230 people have been killed in Gaza and 13 in Israel. The truce was proposed by Egypt, which acted as an intermediary between the two sides. It follows mounting international pressure to bring the fighting to an end. Joe Biden, America's president, said it was an opportunity for progress. I believe the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely and to enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity and democracy. My administration will continue our quiet and relentless diplomacy toward that end. But there are fears that the ceasefire just brings us back to a tense and unchanged status quo. Both Hamas and Israel had achieved most of their objectives pretty early on in this round of, uh, of warfare. Anshul Pfeffer is The Economist's Israel correspondent, and he's based in Jerusalem. Hamas, basically from the, from the start had just uh, wanted to make the point that they were the ones who were launching rockets and who were standing up for the Palestinian identity in Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. And and from that moment, Hamas could have easily agreed to a ceasefire. Israel wanted to use this opportunity to carry on for a few more days of degrading Hamas's military capabilities uh, through airstrikes. But that also, at some point, uh, had achieved most of what they set out. So if both sides got what they wanted early on, why did the ceasefire take so long? It's mainly to do with political reasons. Each side is trying to play to its own audience. Hamas don't want to be seen as having been dictated to to agree to a ceasefire. And I think Benjamin Netanyahu, in a very similar way, wants to be seen by the Israeli public as the person who decides when this is over. And so the last big round of fighting, 2014, saw a ceasefire that then promptly fell apart, resulting in even more fighting. Is this one going to last? The difference uh, between 2014 and now is that when that ceasefire was announced, there were already Israeli forces on the ground, creating many more opportunities for clashes to erupt 
even after the ceasefire had been announced. This round, the 11 days of fighting we've seen, has been, from the Israeli perspective, one of air power. That's much more easy to regulate. And, and I think the same thing goes for Hamas. Hamas have fired rockets. They haven't been ambushing Israeli forces on the ground. So there's much less potential for these clashes to get out of hand. Does Hamas come out of this period of fighting weaker, having had their rocket stockpiles shot to pieces, or stronger, having shown that they can defend Jerusalem? I think in the short term, Hamas has scored major points with the Palestinian public. I have to remember that from polls, we know that the Palestinian public, including in Gaza, where Hamas is in control, sees Hamas as being a corrupt and oppressive entity, very much in the way that they see also President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. But the fact that they were the main force coming out and protesting with a lot of firepower against what was happening at the Al-Aqsa Mosque has given them points. And we've seen crowds gathering, not just in Gaza, but in some Arab-Israeli cities and in Jerusalem overnight with Hamas flags. So that's a short-term gain for Hamas, but they've lost a significant part of their military capabilities over the last 11 days through Israeli airstrikes. And there's a bigger question is, what does Hamas have to offer next? Hamas has been in control of Gaza for the last 14 years now. But Hamas haven't been able to show any kind of path forward towards uh, reopening Gaza to the world. And there's going to be a lot of frustration with them for that. Now, you mentioned President Abbas in Ramallah, in, in the West Bank. Tell us what the broader implications might be beyond Gaza for the Palestinian movement as a whole, which is which is split between the West Bank and Gaza, isn't it? Well, the Palestinian movement, or the Palestinian people living between Jordan and the Mediterranean, around six and a half million Palestinians, are split basically into four different geographic locations and jurisdictions. You mentioned the West Bank, which is under the Palestinian Authority, President Abbas, Gaza under Hamas, and then you have two other Palestinian communities which are ruled by Israel. One is East Jerusalem, where we have about 350,000 Palestinians, most of them without citizenship. And then you have close to 2 million Arab-Israeli Palestinians. And what we've seen in the last 11 days is a very interesting interconnection between these four communities, who some people predicted that they were going almost in separate ways. But we saw how events in Jerusalem sparked off events in Gaza, and events in Gaza sparked off events amongst Arab-Israelis. And the only one of the four communities which sort of stayed out of this, uh, this round of violence was the West Bank. Because in the West Bank, two and a half million Palestinians are under the rule of Abbas, who doesn't want the population there to be, to be supportive of Hamas. He doesn't want to see Hamas making inroads. But at the same time, it was very clear that he has no influence over events in Gaza or elsewhere, except within his West Bank fiefdoms. So what does all of this mean for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as, as the dust settles? Well, Netanyahu is back to his political and personal legal troubles because since the election on March 23rd, he hasn't been able to muster a majority coalition. The mandate to form a new government passed uh, just over two weeks ago to Yair Lapid, leader of the opposition. Also, he's having trouble, especially because since uh, the rioting between Jews and Arabs within Israel, it's become much more difficult to bring Jewish and Arab parties together in one coalition. But Netanyahu is still stuck without a coalition, and what he's trying to do now is basically run down the clock until yet another election has to be called. And in the meantime, for the next few months, he will remain caretaker prime minister. 
Okay, Anshel, you've been looking at these issues for years. You've covered many rounds of conflict and fighting. Where do you think this one sits? Does it change anything? Is it different in any way? Or is it, you know, just one more round that will effectively repeat the cycle? Well, back in 2014, after the last cycle, which was much more devastating, it was 51 days long, 2,300 people died. The feeling afterwards was things will have to change after this. Palestinians won't go back to normal. And what we saw was almost seven years of this sort of tense but manageable status quo in which Gaza continued to fester in isolation. And I really don't see any major indication that it'll be different this time. There's lots of talk about how this has played in the Western media and on social media and how young social justice activists in in the United States are are looking at events. But from the way that the Biden administration acted, and they acted pretty slowly, I haven't seen any pivotal changes or any indications that this time will be any difference. This is a very depressing yet predictable state of affairs. Achel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Shashank. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. July 1st will mark the official centenary of China's Communist Party. And no one is being allowed to forget it. There'll be operas, films, and nearly a hundred tie-in television dramas. The party's 90 million members have been instructed to brush up on their knowledge of the party's past. And party leaders are encouraging people to visit the earliest sites of the revolution. So I went to Jingang Mountain in the southern province of Jiangxi. It is a cradle of the revolution, way before China actually became a communist country back in the 1920s. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. Mao Zedong and a tiny band of Red Army units basically took refuge there because it's a very remote place to these bamboo-clad mountain slopes because they were hiding from the ruling nationalist regime and warlords. It was an incredibly poor, incredibly remote part of the country, so poor that lots of locals would eat wild vegetables and trap squirrels for meat. And what did you find when you went there? So, like a lot of these very important party patriotic history sites, they have built a kind of weirdly kitsch tourist complex. And it has a big museum. And tour groups come in in tour buses, some of them wearing replica red army uniforms. A lot of them are actually groups of colleagues from some branch of the Communist Party or some government ministry. And the museum is filled with revolutionary relics and statues of the young Mao Zedong, statues of Red Army soldiers holding their entrails in with one hand while they kill the enemy with the other before they die heroically. And then once they've gone around the museum, they go to souvenir shops selling things like Mao statues. And the entire site is now being sort of covered in 100th anniversary paraphernalia. I went for a walk late at night and found work crews right out in the dark in the rain installing floral displays, streetlights topped with red plastic flames, 
and a lot of propaganda. This is a party site. So you have red characters hanging from the trees in the dark saying things like, the people have faith, the country has strength, the nation has hope. David, where does Jingang Mountain fit into this revolutionary history? It's really interesting. So that you have to make a distinction between the real history that is recorded in history books before the party revised them all, and that is really bloody. So this was a very important place where there's some major ideological fights going on about the extent to which the party should be willing to use mass terror, should you kill every landlord in a rural area in order to have kind of total class warfare, should you just kill the richest or the most obnoxious. Mao, who was then quite controversial figure, he was one of the leading revolutionaries, but was rowing all the time with the party bosses back in Shanghai. He favoured the selective use of terror. So, for example, this is where he pioneered public execution rallies in which he had local peasants come and disembowel landlords and gentry with spears. Mao's departure from this place in 1929 was, if you read real history books, not glorious. A much larger enemy force came up in January 1929, and Mao simply retreated, leaving behind a token force to defend thousands of villages, wounded troops, Red Army wives and children. It was a terrible massacre. And an official history published in 1987, back in a time when there was actually relative honesty about Mao's mistakes, quoted a party inspector from the time that the Red Army's stay on this very poor mountain had left the entire region totally bankrupt. And how is that complicated history presented to people visiting today? That complicated history is completely erased. They talk about the Jingang mountain spirit. They talk about being a cradle of the revolution. You have people who at the time were sworn enemies in real life now embracing each other as bronze statues in the museum. And one of the reasons I went there is that it's got a large party ideological school there for mid to high-ranking cadres, and it's very selective, so it's a big treat. If you're like the party secretary of a provincial university or a state-owned factory, you can earn the right to spend a couple of weeks at the party school on the mountain, and then you go on field trips. So I watched a group of these middle-aged officials standing there with red scars around their necks, holding a red party flag and reciting in unison a Mao poem about a famous victory on a mountain pass where a small group of the Red Army held off a much bigger enemy force. A lecturer told them that the importance of this place is that long-ago locals showed complete loyalty to the party. The problem is, if you're a historian who actually knows the history of the place, the locals hated the Communist Party at the Red Army, who left the place in ruins. And the people who've made the pilgrimage there, are they buying that airbrushed history? Absolutely. This is a sort of a semi-religious experience, and some of the local officials from Jingang Mountain will talk about how it's a sacred place where you can come to realise that whatever problems you have in your real life you realise how much tougher it was. I should say I was at the academy on an official propaganda tour organised by the government because as a journalist you can't normally go there. And it was really interesting to see how these hand-picked students who were all middle-aged party officials neatly traced a red culture that connects those early martyrs with material prosperity today. And often, as I say, ideologically, there wasn't tremendously interesting content. <laughs> So one guy who's a party chief at a university 
in central China. When he was explaining why he loves the Communist Party, why the Communist Party has always been good for China, said that, you know, well, when I was a younger man and my son was small, I rode him on a bicycle. And my father said, goodness, how lucky he is to be able to ride on the back of the bicycle. Whereas my grandchild, who's about to be born, will ride in a big smart car. So he said, the people have always had dreams of a better life. But the history they seem to be relying on here is, is a history of resistance to revolution. And every time that you've been on this show and talked to us, you've brought up the very many ways in which the Chinese Communist Party absolutely does not want resistance. It's a really interesting point. And clearly, for Xi Jinping's Communist Party, which is all about order and conformity and the absolute authority of party leaders, to be celebrating a revolution, let alone someone like Mao Zedong, who was constantly rowing and fighting with his other party superiors at the time, is potentially a bit of a trap. So what they do is they just take all of the real history out and they replace it with this modern-day narrative about the fact that a true revolutionary spirit in the Xi Jinping era is one that submits to party authority. And so history is not about things that happened decades ago. It's a way to measure how far China has come and how much you should thank the Communist Party. And memories of the real past, with all its messiness, are not welcome. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you. The best and most famous school for the poor in Ethiopia was not founded by a rich man. It was founded by Asfor Yemiru, who decided at the age of nine that he didn't want a life herding goats, but he would much rather go to Addis Ababa and see what opportunities the world offered there. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. So, barefoot and with only 50 cents in his pocket, he set off from his village in Buglar, in a very poor part of Ethiopia, to walk to Addis Ababa, 75 miles... When he got there, he found it was not quite the place he had hoped. Instead of getting a job at once, he joined a whole swarm of children who were living and begging in the churchyard of St George's Cathedral. At the same time, he found a job as a bearer and a labourer. And one day he had an extremely lucky break because as he was labouring away, a rich Turkish woman came past with a basket full of cheeses and some of them fell out and he raced to pick them up. And she was looking for a helper in the house and was so impressed with him that she took him on and in between all the chores she gave him, he found he had enough time to go to primary school. And he did so well there that he won a free scholarship to one of the best schools in the city, the General Wingate School. didn't get in quite at the start because although he'd won the scholarship, he was passed over for a rich boy. And he took the initiative of going to the headmaster, dressed in rags as he was, wrapped in a blanket, barefoot, and saying, 
I am Azfoyemiru, and I'm here to learn. The head was very taken with this and managed to get him into the school. And there again, he did well. But he was bothered that when the boys ate their lunches in the dining room, all the scraps that they left over were just taken away and burned because there was a little crowd of the same begging poor street children just round the door of the school and over the wall. So he arranged to distribute food to them. But then he realised that the children wanted to know why they couldn't come into the school. And he decided what they needed was actually not just food, but education. He started classes, set up a little open-air class in a churchyard, and there the children would crowd around him. He had a board on which he chalked up the letters. And as a couple of years or so passed, he found he had nearly 300 children coming to his classes. The church began to complain, and it was clear he'd got to find a proper site and build a school. One day, the emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, paid a visit to Wingate School. And there was a time-honored tradition in Ethiopia that if you wanted something from the emperor, you threw yourself in front of his carriage or in front of his car and asked for it. So this is what Asfor Yemiru did. He dashed out in front of the limousine, shouting, we want land. The emperor questioned him and then agreed to give him some land. So eventually he got 300 acres right by the Wingate School and started to build. And gradually over the years, the school, which he called the Azra Harariat School, which means Footsteps of the Apostles, grew and grew. He had to scrape up money from somewhere because there were no fees, and so he needed to raise funds. One way he did it was with a sponsored walk of 620 miles across the desert to Harar, which is a city almost in Somalia. He was given money by the headmaster of Wingate School, and he was also allowed to take the unclaimed money from the National Lottery at one point. So he managed to keep the school going, and it got tremendously good results. So he had much to be grateful for, and he was very proud of his school, but there was also always one worry he had, which was that if the children did well and got office jobs, they would begin to forget where they'd come from. He didn't want to turn out students who were socially useless, as he put it. He wanted them to be sure to give something back. And in fact, the students in his school, when they reached the later years, were encouraged to go out and teach adult literacy classes or simply to teach their parents at home, could instruct them in reading and writing and pass on everything they'd received and, with luck, do something to narrow the huge gap in Ethiopia which still exists between the rich and the poor. There was one particular occasion when the rich and the poor came together quite notably and showed what an extraordinary school this was. And that was when the emperor, Haile Selassie, came to the school to visit it. He always took quite an interest in it. And on these occasions, Asfor Yemiru would appear barefoot because he wanted never to forget where he'd come from. He wanted always to remember how he'd first started on that long barefoot walk from his village to Addis Ababa. Anne Rowe on Asfor Yemiru, who's died aged 78 or 79. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Margaret Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Duncan Barber and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren and assistant producer Jason Hoskin with additional help from Emily Elias. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans. And if you miss Jason Palmer, don't worry, he'll be back with you on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.